0: bottle of wine that truly represents a particular grape or region. To pick up a copy, just head to amazon.com or visit us at mamajumboshrimp.com.
1: Welcome to Masterclass US Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. This show has been designed to demystify the US market for Italian wineries through interviews with experts in sales and distribution, social media, communications, and so much more. We will quiz each of our esteemed guests at the end of each episode to solidify the lessons that we've learned. So sharpen your pencils, get out your notebooks, and join us this week to learn more about the US market. Hello, my name is Giuliana Colangelo, and I am the host of the Masterclass Unit's Wine Market, a new series on the Italian Wine Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome our guest, Peter Young, to the Italian Wine Podcast for this new series. Peter is a leading wine business consultant, author of the book, Luxury Wine Marketing, and the co-host of the Ex Chateau Podcast, another great wine podcast. He was previously vice president of strategy and business development at Realm Cellars in Napa and Costa Brown Winery in Barbara Peter is in the Master of Wine program currently and holds the WSET Diploma, as well as the CIA's Certified Wine Professional designations. Prior to wine, Peter led strategic marketing, market development, and sales for a clean technology company in Silicon Valley, and was a management consultant with McKinsey & Company. Peter also holds an MS from the London School of Economics and a BA from the University of California Berkeley in Economics, and is currently based in San Francisco. Welcome to today's show, Peter. Thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me, Juliana. You're making me feel like I need to cut down my uh, bio a little bit.
1: So, Peter, you've had an (laughs) impressive resume both in and outside of the wine industry. Tell us a little bit what you're up to now.
2: Yeah, right now my focus has been on business consulting for the wine industry more broadly. Uh, It's all parts of the value chain from producers mostly, but also brokers, retailers, and e-commerce companies and even private equity firms or other investors looking to invest and transact in the space. There's really like two areas of focus. One is sales and marketing strategy.
1: okay,
2: And the other is more like long term strategy, financial planning and M&A or financing. So kind of both with a sales and marketing and a finance uh, strategy angle. Um, at the same time.
1: Very interesting. And are you working mostly with wineries in the U.S. or are you also working with wineries internationally?
2: Primarily wineries in the U.S. and primarily California, actually in Northern California where I'm based, so it's a little easier to connect and have meetings. But uh, I do a little bit of work uh, in New York and a little bit um, internationally, but the majority is uh, in the U.S.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well, um, you were the co-author of a book that was uh, released several years ago called Luxury Wine Marketing. So our focus for today's episode in this series is really gonna be about the US market for luxury wines today and how luxury Italian wine brands can reach the new consumer of luxury wines in the US. So our three key takeaways for today's episode, and we'll review these again at the end in a mini quiz, are how is luxury wine defined today? Number two, what is the market for luxury Italian wine in the U.S.? And finally, what are the opportunities for luxury Italian wines in the U.S. market? So lots to dive into, and we're really excited to hear all your knowledge and expertise on this subject. So um, let's just dive right in because I've got lots of questions for you. So uh, let's start first with some terminology and definitions, because uh, I always think that's you know important to set the stage of what we're talking about. So can you define for us in your own words, what, what is luxury wine? How do you define luxury wine?
2: Well, we have a definition in, in our book, Luxury Wine Marketing. That's probably the, the easiest and the most structured way to look at it. Otherwise, I would probably be uh, skipping things. But we define it, Liz and I, who wrote the book together, as wine of the highest quality coming from a special place on earth. As an element of scarcity, an ele- elevated price, and provides a sense of privilege and pleasure to the owner. So each one of those pieces is actually important, and we talk about it in the book as how to define luxury wine. Because just because a winery tries to or believes that they're luxury, and or sets you know a really high price, doesn't mean that they're actually a luxury wine. Right? Because often people confuse luxury with like what a brand projects outwardly, like oh the. You know the packaging is so luxury or that that event or whatnot but it's more about what that brand represents to consumers in general so luxury products in general have been used historically to differentiate people from each other whether that's a good thing or not is another issue but to be a luxury product other people besides the people who even buy it need to know about it right so you know if you owned a a birkin bag but no one else knew what that was I would say that's probably not a luxury product.
1: So there's external factors at play, right? That that define what a luxury wine really is.
2: Yeah, well, there's there's market factors. So that is to say, like, I've seen some people try to define it as uh, this is just what the brand or the winery tries to project themselves as, and that's how you define luxury and create luxury. And it's, there's can be an element of that, but it also includes the feedback back from consumers and society to say, no, this actually is special. You know, One an example I'll give is that in general, for the entire region, Burgundy thinks of themselves as non-luxury. They hate the term luxury. And they, you know, they want to portray themselves as farmers and dedicated the land, which they are. I'm not saying that they aren't. But if when you drink and own bottles of Burgundy, they're, for the most part, the high-end stuff, very rare, very expensive. And other people take note when, when you have that. I mean, the probably most well-known luxury wine in the world is DRC, right? right? Mm -hmm. So even though they don't necessarily want to be, they are a luxury product.
1: Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. In terms of, you know, you mentioned price as one of the factors, and I think that's something we often think about when we think about luxury goods. Would you say there's a price minimum or a ceiling, or do you prefer not to look at luxury wine using that, that lens of price?
2: No, price. Price is definitely a factor and important. And, uh, you know, when we wrote the book, we put in these bands. And so the bottom band for luxury that we put in is $100. And, you know, it's not in the US market. And it's not, you know, 99.95. And, you know, 101 don't make that much of a difference. But when it's, when you're getting to that triple digit range, you're getting to a point where it's a different consumer, you're not getting consumers that are you know, buying wine from the supermarket and also buying those wines. I mean, there might be a small percentage, but for the most part, these are different people buying from different places. So they're buying from right. you know specialty wine merchants, auctions, et cetera. They're not buying from the grocery store where most, you know, 90% of wine, you know, volume is sold today.
1: Right, exactly. And that leads me to the next question I wanted to, to put out there to you was about the consumer today for luxury wine in the U.S. market, who, who are buying these wines priced at $100 and more in the U.S.?
2: Right now, it's still mostly the baby boomers and Gen X who live in the suburbs and and buy wine. Millennials are starting to get to this phase in life where you know they're having families, having more wealth. They were sort of delayed by the um, financial crisis or the, the great recession. And We're
1: making a comeback, though. We're exactly, getting there.
2: Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Making comeback, and you know, people, especially in the US, have been having kids a little bit later in life, and so all those things start to, and that that delays. Uh, you know, I just had a kid who's two now, and the amount of money, <laughs> not just that time and energy, but money that goes into that, is delays the ability to buy luxury wines for a bit, right? Right. But so having that accumulation of wealth and other things is coming a little later for millennials, but they're starting to get into that phase where they're they're starting to buy luxury wines okay you know and traditionally it's been your sort of white male professionals in that 40 to 55 age bracket you know who make good income and and all that sort of thing what's interesting about that is like 10 10 years ago i did a project with a data scientist friend of mine and we took a luxury wineries database and tried to see if there were patterns between which customers were good and and not as good customers or Because the hypothesis was like, maybe for this brand, if, you know, there's lawyers in Dallas, for whatever reason, you know, lawyers in Dallas really love this wine, then we can go to the bar association in Dallas or some sort of association and, you know, collect customers because customer acquisition is always a difficult thing for wineries. Um, But when we pull demographic data, we pulled, you know, education and, um, you know, work data from like LinkedIn and things like that and try to run... Correlations through you know uh, data algorithms, and we got there was no correlation. All the good customers and the bad customers—they all looked the same. It was all like wow. you know, it was all middle-aged professional white guys. All right, right. Fortunately, I think it's starting to change. Uh, just in the over the course of the last decade, it's starting to change. We I hear that women are getting more and more into collecting wine and participating in auctions and doing more wine education. Um, I know you just got the Italian wine ambassador.
1: Thank you.
2: Uh, Designation. So that's a a big one.
1: Yeah.
2: And, you know, we heard from like Jamie Ritchie at Sotheby's and all the auction houses that women are becoming more into the auction space. So that's exciting. And that's, you know, new. It's very exciting. And probably even more further back than that, more nascent than that. But I think more people of color are beginning to get into wine and explore the category. Right. And so they're often inspired by some famous people like, you know, basketball icons like LeBron James and Steph Curry, who have their are famously into wine or have their own wine brands. Mm-hmm. And they're starting to explore the space. Dwayne Wade has his brand, brand right?
1: Right. Wade Sellers. Mm-hmm.
2: And yeah. And even more than basketball players, but football and, and, and celebrities, etc. But all these people are starting to broaden the reach of wine into other demographics of people and they're, as they get into wine, they're also getting into luxury wines and especially when these iconic people who happen to drink a lot of luxury wines get it, the wines that they see and hear of do tend to be the higher end end wines and not the sort of more everyday wine.
1: Right. And like we talked about with luxury wines, a key factor is is the market how the market perceives the brand so a lot of times oftentimes Mm -hmm. the luxury wines are some of the more famous well-regarded wines that these celebrities and athletes are getting into so I, i think that's a really interesting factor for the future of the luxury wine consumer in the us as well but um what i'm hearing from you is it's still largely you know boomer gen x getting into the older millennial white male but we're seeing a change we're seeing more women we're seeing people from different backgrounds, more diverse backgrounds, getting into the luxury wine market, which is exciting.
2: Exactly, and, and as Gen X is much smaller uh, cohort than the Boomers and the Millennials, it's almost imperative in this sort of bridging period between them that we do expand the space to more diverse audiences like women and, and people of color, because they the people in the Gen X base have the money and the ability to buy the wines, they have the desire um, but they just need the comfort, the spaces and, you know, the relationships to start start doing that. And they're underrepresented. So if we can broaden that out there, then we can manage, you know, the the drop off of the boomers.
1: Right, right. That's, that's super important. So it's important for brand luxury brands, especially to start thinking about different types of consumers uh, in their approach to marketing, which kind of leads me to my next question, which would be about the Italian wine category specifically and how is the Italian wine category performing in the luxury wine market in the U.S., whether it's you know maybe what, what regions are performing well, which wines are performing well, just give us a kind of general picture uh, of that space.
2: Yeah, I think in the U.S., Italian wines have a historic place that give it a, a bigger share than, than what it performs globally. There's a history of Italian immigrants. I think you may run into that category.
1: <laughs> I sure a, do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's a prevalence of Italian restaurants in the U.S., so Italian wines do pretty well in the U.S. versus you know the the big dog of France and other major wine producing companies. Um, so when we I, I did a little preparation for this, and when we looked uh, at th- when we built the luxury wine database for luxury wine marketing, I looked at how. Much wine was imported into the U.S. versus the total production of all the major regions of the world. to use as kind of a scaling factor to do some estimation uh, for that database. Okay. And for all wines, not just luxury wines, for Piedmont, we import 21% uh, of the wines into the U.S. and Tuscany, 19%. Wow. And when you compare this to Bordeaux and Burgundy, it's only four and 10%.
1: Super interesting.
2: So we we do as a country have a great appreciation for italian wines and so i think that's i think you know i think the u.s the brunello calorie was built on the u.s market with bonfi initially and and everything else and u.s consumers often view top italian wines as interchangeable with some of the top wines of bordeaux and burgundy and even domestic wines i you know i i don't know that some singular brands maybe rise up to the drcs or first gross of the world but in general i think when people bring a barolo or a super tuscan like sasakaya or an alaya to to a dinner it it gets a lot has as the same amount of gravitas as if they brought you know a Segur or cos or something like that
1: yeah absolutely and and thanks for doing your homework and that research and what the numbers you shared tell tell us are there's- more wines available i'd imagine in the u.s market within those tiers as well mm-hmm. than coming from burgundy and bordeaux based on um, export percentages
2: and generally we see more imported wine on the coast like in new york and california particularly mm-hmm. and more domestic wines in the middle of the country um, and i think that also applies to italian wine but but i think italian wine uh, and i don't have the you know detailed data on this but has a strong pool across the country because of you know the connection with uh, people of Italian heritage and the and the Italian food culture, that's everywhere. Just I mean, you look at um, uh, the Frasca Group in in Colorado, right? right? They're uh, mostly Italian lines. So
1: yeah, absolutely. Or look at the proliferation of Italy, right? They've been opening up uh, all around the country and
2: um, all around the world in Italy, surprisingly, yes, right? That too,
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so, Peter, you joined us in in uh, Verona last year for Wine to Wine and, and spoke on um, uh, what pricing communicates for fine wine. Can you tell us a little bit more about this concept and and maybe some of the, the key takeaways from that presentation?
2: Sure, yeah. The basic idea is that for fine and, and luxury wines, price is a lot more than just what is the market price you can get for it. If you're buying, you know, commercial wines or you have a Saint-Emilion, crew class a or um or Grand crew or uh, you know a bordeaux class a oftentimes you're just fitting into a marketplace and a price point but it's a lot more than that for fine wines um and so i think there's five key elements that price communicates for fine wine and that's what i went through in my presentation one is like the value proposition for customers what what value are proposing to your customers so sometimes higher price can be an expression of that value, or sometimes it could be a lower price. Like one example is uh, Costa Brown that I, I helped manage for a little while. They historically had their most limited wine four barrel priced the same as the other single vineyards as a thank you to their customers, to their customer base. because they, the, So there was a value proposition for that particular wine to say, you know, even though this is special and there's a 10 year wait for it, I'm just going to charge you the same as the other wines because it's uh, thank you.
1: Right. Because they're so based on a membership model, too, where they have that direct communication to the consumer.
2: Exactly. And then there's a level of expected quality. So, you know, price and quality should, generally speaking, be positively correlated with wines. Um, and actually, when I did some of the research for luxury wine market, I, I did for fun, like a correlation of wine spectator scores and price. And generally it is positively correlated, like the more expensive the wine, the higher the, the average points uh score you get.
1: Okay.
2: Um, but when you charge someone a hundred dollars or more for a bottle, they expect to get, you know, a hundred dollars worth of quality. Right. Uh, th- there's limits to that, and brand comes into play, and we'll get into that. But when I see, I often see wines that score, you know, get a hundred points from Parker, and no matter how they're originally priced, usually they end up trading for around three hundred dollars a bottle. So to me, that's kind of interesting. The limit of where just quality takes you. And wines that are priced above that often have a lot of brand value that are above just the quality of the wine that represent that price. And so, you know, the third element, I think, uh, that price represents is the brand reputation. Setting your price tells others how you see your brand and the value that it has. Right. So, for example, Harlan Estate in Napa, when they priced their wines when they first were launched, they came out at the top of the range of Napa to emphasize the "Quote unquote first growth nature of of what they were trying to accomplish, and you know, and sometimes it's you setting the price as a brand, and other times it's the market reflecting that in the secondary market and saying, I'm going to pay you know two or three times the amount you sold it for because uh, you know I believe in in the the value of this brand and the, it's there.
1: Right. Sometimes it's out of the brand's kind of control too. Right. It's the market's going to take it.
2: Yeah, there's both. And eventually they should equilibrate to each other. Right over time, you would think that, uh, you know, they would start to get closer and closer together.
0: Italian Wine Podcast. Part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp family.
2: And then the fourth element is relative quality. So price gives a sense of not just quality overall in the absolute sense, but relative in position to other wines, either both within your portfolio, if you have a range of wines and of other wines of the world. And one of the good examples of that that's mentioned in luxury wine marketing is in the early 70s, Gaia in Italy increased their um, prices to match the top wines of Bordeaux and Burgundy because they believe their wine should be compared to those and not to the rest of Piedmont or to, or to Barbaresco. And so even though it took some time to, you know, get everyone on board with that and be willing to pay the prices, that's how one of the ways that they were able to establish themselves as a global player and a global luxury brand and not just the best of Piedmont.
1: Right. Right. By putting themselves on that more of that global stage. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: Yep. And then lastly, the fifth element is customers willing to pay. Right. In the end, you have to sell the wine to have a sustainable business. And so people have to be willing to pay that price that you that you said and you have there. So one, one extreme example of this is, you know, when you only have 550 bottles like uh, Liber Potter, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, and Bordeaux had, I think it was their 2015 vintage. Uh, and they have a, a great story around making wines that are sort of pre phylloxera Bordeaux. Um, they ran a Dutch auction with their customers to... To set a price, and they were able to charge, you know, a record. I think at the time, like thirty thousand euro a bottle for for each of those five hundred and fifty bottles. But, you know, the the customer willing to pay also is something that is being communicated with the price of a fine wine.
1: So, Peter, in marketing, we often look towards other industries like the fashion industry, uh, automobiles, cars other luxury goods and what they're doing when it comes to marketing. And I think you know, there's a lot that the wine industry can learn. What do you think wine brands can learn from other luxury goods when it comes to marketing?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question, Julian, and really good choice of words because fashion and luxury are actually really different words and really different things. Fashion is of the moment versus luxury is timeless. So that's how they're, they're different because you know fashion has seasons and brands that, that change over time. And so you have to be careful about thinking uh, about learning from one versus the other because luxury takes time. It's not something that happens overnight and it takes years to establish the brand reputation and customer base and reputation from the population as a whole. So when we think about wine, you know some wine trends, like we have the RTD trend and seltzers, low alcohol and stuff. They might be fashionable today, but they aren't necessarily luxury. Uh, that doesn't mean you can't make more money, you know, following trends in fashion than doing a, a luxury wine. But uh, you need to think about it differently, and you need to think for luxury in terms of decades and generations, not months and quarters.
1: Right. Well, what if you know we look at a, a luxury brand like like a Gucci, you know, or Armani. Do you think there are things that the wine industry can take away of of what they're doing in terms of marketing?
2: Well, I think there's definitely some similarities. Uh, For example, like if you take Armani, they have the different brands and secondary brands, which would be similar to wineries having like a second label or a third label. And so that could be one element of how do you connect those brands and leverage the halo of the luxury brand without destroying it. Right, so you have ones like Mondavi kind of had some issues with Woodbridge by Mondavi kind of taking the the core brand down for a while. sort of trying to rebuild itself uh, versus others where they're not quite as connected. You know, so far at least, Duckhorn and Decoy seem to be disconnected and, and feeding off each other as opposed to doing better. Not that I would say that Duckhorn's a luxury brand, but it's you know got a second label that isn't taking away from the first label
1: right that's a really good example good good reference um you know in this series we're talking a lot about the new consumer in the u.s market millennial gen z the the new consumer the new the new generation how do you think the luxury wine market can reach this new audience of u.s wine consumers
2: yeah i think there's a few ways that we've seen people really reaching that new consumer and younger consumer. One has been sort of mass media or media in general, but more not wine media, per se, but mass media. If you look at the success of this is older, but sideways, and more recently, the SOM movies and now the SOM TV streaming channel, the SOM TV streaming channel, their audience is actually heavy millennial based, more than Gen X or, or baby boomers. And so it's drawing more people into wine and getting them interested and not really for the US market but in Asia the popularity of the Drops of God manga comic book really amplified the market for luxury wines and you know being featured in that that comic book had had the wines sold out you know throughout Asia wow so these aren't really like wine-specific media, but they're human stories that appeal to everybody and get people interested in wine.
1: So more pop culture channels, like I know, there's also a couple shows that came out earlier that you know last year, like Grand Crew and a couple others that were wine-focused. Um, so you're seeing success for the next generation in more mainstream pop culture media,
2: and even being mentioned or featured. We you know recently the. I think, I think I saw that you also watched the last oh, yeah. season of White Lotus <laughs> and that, you know, had some benefit for Sicily. I had, a, there's a brand in Napa that was mentioned for, uh, in um, one of the uh, reality TV shows, uh, selling Beverly Hills or buying Beverly Hills or whatever it is on Netflix. And that actually got them a decent bit of traction as well. So even the, the sub areas, it's so similar to that celebrity uh, right? In, influence that we talked about earlier. So I think that, you know, mass media helps to broaden the audience to people who weren't thinking about or collecting wine or, or even drinking those types of wines before now it broadens mm-hmm. it into a, a new audience and gets it in people's minds. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the younger generations are very interested in a lot of the details and knowing more about the store not just the story, but how things work and all that. And so right. wine education has gotten really popular. And so you have that book, Cork Dork from Bianca Bosker, which sh- shows her journey with the CMS and being in that culture, but also programs like the Wine and Spirit Education Trust or WSET has really exploded in terms of popularity, even at the, especially at the entry levels. and that wine education gets people more interested in all types of wine, including the higher, higher end things. People aren't just settling for, you know, what they can find Mm -hmm. at their eye level in the grocery store, what's closest to the, the door handle of the refrigerator, but they're exploring more and exploring more higher end wines as they get more educated.
1: Right. Even apps like Vivino, right. That are used for education, but also discovery I know are popular among friends of mine. Uh, outside of the wine industry.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, some of those apps can can be helpful as well. And, but I, I think that just even that structured education, just more people are interested in it, right. you know, and, and getting smarter about it and wanting to understand it better. And that's, that's really, I think, driven some more consumption of different styles of wine. I mean, you see the, even between, not just like the called sort of like the natural wine movement, but just all sorts of hipster wines or sommeliers, people following sommeliers, right? I think that's another way. Not that sommeliers always had an influence because trying wine at a restaurant and the curation from the sommelier and the recommendation, maybe some storytelling at times, has always been important, especially for luxury wines. But now people are actually following sommeliers on like social media and other things and getting more recommendations from them. And that, Broadens their influence more, and you know we talked to, to at Chateau with um, Doug Frost, and he was saying about wine competitions, and he still said that we're still in the area of the era of the sommelier because sommeliers talk to each other, whereas mm-hmm. other people like uh, retailers and others don't talk to each other, and so that they talk to each other, so they spread the knowledge around some cool brand that they're really into, and then it starts to get more traction that way.
1: Yeah. And then that's how we see trends emerge. Exactly. So within these different channels, you mentioned, you know, pop culture, education. Do you think there are any particular opportunities for luxury Italian wine brands to reach this new consumer in the U.S. market?
2: I mean, you know, I think there's so many, obviously, education, What you know, uh, Vin Italy is doing with uh, uh, Italian wine ambassadors. That's an interesting way to promote and the trade organization is doing that promotion, um, as well, uh, with pop culture. I mean, we, we talked about an example with the white Lotus and, yeah. and Sicily <laughs> and, and all that. And, um, before I went to, uh, wine to wine last, uh, November, I, I had never been to Verona. I didn't know anything about it. And I saw, um, a movie on Netflix about, um, it was like a romantic comedy. I, I can't remember what it's called, but it, uh, it taught me all about Verona and was like centered around Vin Italy and all that. And so I think, you know, it gave,
1: oh, wow! It,
2: it certainly gave people and in some insight into uh, the wine culture and, and things of that nature. Right. Um, you know, like there's Emily loves Paris, right. Uh, which is more about French wine culture and champagne, but that, that could be big. I know like getting engaged in some of these other, areas that aren't just sort of for wine geeks but like i know in sports f1 has mm-hmm. been pretty big amongst people in general but especially people who really love to collect wine um you know champagne has always been good at, at sponsoring things i know piper high has often sp- uh, sponsored product for show tv shows and, and movies and they sponsor the australian open tennis tournament so there's
1: and the award shows yeah
2: yeah those are a lot of ways that i mean those are for bigger brands right that have that kind of budget to to do that um you know there are a lot of smaller ways uh of connecting with people just even thinking about wine dinners and you know which is a common thing and people do them and you connect and you have a wine dinner at a restaurant or at someone's home or something like that you connect with 10 people but i think one of the things that a lot of, uh, wine brands in general and especially Italian wine brands or people coming from, you know, overseas, what they don't do is necessarily get people's contact information and follow up. Right. And build a connection with them that lasts a long time. So, you know, you may go to a wine dinner and, you know, have a great experience and meet the winemaker and all that. But if if there's no way to stay connected, that memory is going to start to fade and, and not, you know, be as good. So, you know, Obviously, you can't sell direct to consumer from Italy to, or you can, but it's very difficult (laughs) from Italy to the U.S. But there are technologies or or systems like uh, VinConnect that enables you to sell sort of DTC in quotes to to American wine consumers. And even if you're not selling that much wine, but getting them on the system and being able to communicate with them, so sending them a message, not every day, but every month or every quarter or a couple times a year, even helps keep your brand awareness in their minds from the experience they had whether they you know had a wine dinner with you whether they visited you at you know the the winery in Italy or any of those sorts of things just building that base of fans and not letting it fade away as quickly will help people get in front and and build your fan base more and more and that's you know i think one of the cores of you know business and marketing in general is just to keep that flow of fans growing and building.
1: Yeah. So capturing information during the event and then the follow up, the email marketing, you know, the post event follow up is is really key and, and really, really important. I think that's a really great reminder for all our listeners um so as we wrap things up here we like to on this series do a little quiz just to hammer home our main takeaways from our our master class and this episode so i'm going to ask you three questions and if you can answer in one sentence or less we'll make this kind of rapid fire uh that would be great so let's get started so question number one what is the price floor for luxury wine
2: I'd say $100, US retail.
1: $100, okay. Question number two, which demographic or market has the highest share of luxury wine consumption right now in the US?
2: It's still the baby boomers.
1: All right. And finally, which Italian luxury wines are selling the most in the US right now?
2: It's uh, Barolo and the Super Tuscans.
1: Okay, great. Thanks so much, Peter. Um we learned a lot on today's episode and really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about the luxury wine market in the U.S. and the opportunities there are for Italian luxury wines. we learned so much. So thank you again for being here and thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. See you later, Peter.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for joining me today. Stay tuned each week for new episodes of Masterclass US Wine Market with me, Juliana Colangelo. And remember, if you enjoyed today's show, hit the like and follow buttons wherever you get your podcasts.